I'd like to invite you tonight to turn to Colossians chapter 4. We will focus our attention on verses uh, 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. So let me, let me read those for us and then we'll pray. The scriptures say, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray for God's blessing. Lord, we know that you hear our prayers, and we know that somehow in your mysterious providence, our prayers impact history, and they impact our present lives. So we ask again tonight that you would come and meet with us. We have your word, we have your spirit, we have all that we need to grow. And so I pray that you would help us. Help us to grow in our affections for you. Lord, all of us, I think we all love you, but none of us love you like we should. So let us grow in that tonight. Give me clarity as I speak um, and help us to see and understand more the beauty of Christ and what he would have us do with our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're nearing the end of our long study of the book of Colossians. I trust that you've been blessed and benefited from hearing God's word and, uh, and have allowed the seed of God's word to be planted into your heart. You know, it, it excites me to consider God's promise that his word always works with power and that it, that it always produces fruit in the lives of those who receive it with gladness. And so you can trust that God will do that to you as you receive his word in faith. And how much more does he bless the systematic preaching, the continual over and over preaching and application of his word. So I want to encourage you to continue consuming God's word each day and as you come to hear it preached in the ministry of the church. Our study tonight takes us to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And, you know, we walked really slowly through chapter 3, 17 sermons in chapter 3. And we're not going to go that slow in, uh, in chapter 4. It's going to go much more quickly. Um, or as Addie says, more quicker. More quicker. More quicker. Yeah, less quicker. That's, that's my style. And our section tonight signifies something of a transition for Paul. Um, hopefully you've been able to track with the big picture, the main message of Colossians, which we've repeated in different forms and in different applications week after week. You see, Paul has, he's now concluded his general exhortations to the Colossians where he has been emphasizing and expounding upon how it is that Christians who claim to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, how it is that we're to live. All right? Because if you claim that Jesus is Lord, it doesn't end there. Right? You spend your life working out that belief. And really, we demonstrate whether or not we believe that's true. 
in how we, how we live. In other words, if you really believe that Jesus is better, all right, that's how we've put it in our study, if you believe that he's better than all things and before all things, what does that mean for my marriage? What does that mean for my family? And what does that mean for my career? All right, so now Paul is taking a slight turn. And here in, in chapter 3, he was focused much more on uh, the, the, in, the inner life of the Christian and particularly the inner workings of the church and Christian relationships. And, and now he's turning more outward, right? He's turning to our gospel mission. He's zooming out. And there's some continuity in the flow of ideas here, right? We can see how this works, right? If, if Jesus is your Lord, not only will that touch and transform your inner life and your home life and your work life and your relationships, but it will also establish a personal call to ministry. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then that belief will lead to a personal call for you, Christian, to live on mission. So the main idea from our text this evening, I'll put it like this. The conviction that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of mankind does not only transform our personal lives, but it also drives us outward to pray ambitious kingdom prayers and to engage in strategic missional friendships. Right, so if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that is going to drive you outward to pray kingdom prayers and to engage in strategic missional friendships. So let me draw your attention. Right, we've been basically, for the last three months, we've just been working out different ways that the fact that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean for blank? Right, that's what we've been doing and trying to figure, figure that out. So we're going to continue that. Uh, with some different ways that the Lordship of Christ transforms our life. So the first one is this. The Lordship of Christ drives us to vibrant prayer lives. The Lordship of Christ drives us to have vibrant prayer lives. In verse 2, Paul is exhorting Christians to pray. Right? It's really a simple instruction, one that we all know. This is not controversial. I know that you know you should pray. I also know that you probably know that you don't pray enough, right? I've, I, don't, I, don't, I don't meet Christians who say, I pray enough. If I do, I don't trust them, right? Because who among us does? It's a, it's a struggle. But look at all the different ways. Paul does not just say pray, but look at all the different ways he characterizes our prayer lives. We are not to be content simply with praying, as good as that is, but our prayers are to have a particular flavor. They should be steadfast, they should be watchful, and they should be dripping with thanksgiving. Do you see all those in, in verse 2? Let's take them one at a time. I'll, go, I'll, try, to go, I'll try to keep moving through this, but... Uh, first, we're to pray with steadfastness, right? You see that? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Of course, you'll notice the assumption, Paul's assuming you're praying. Continue, right? Continue. The natural expectation is that we Christians would pray. That we would pray. Since we've been freed from the bondage and the penalty of sin... 
since we have been de-alienated or unalienated or reunited with Christ, who the who Colossians says, he is our very life, of course we're going to pray. That's the logic. If, if the very Spirit of God now dwells in our hearts, and if he's given us a new heart, and that new heart is constantly prompted by the Spirit to cry out in longing for fellowship of God, of course we'll pray. I mean, just think of how vital communication is to the health of any relationship. I mean, so it is with God. There's no way to have a healthy relationship without communication. Since Haley and I have been married, we have moved nine times and lived in five states. She's wondering why we lost her Christmas decor. I don't know what they're called. Like her Christmas village. We're like, it's in an attic in one of the states. I don't know, right? We've moved a lot, which means that we've had to say a lot of goodbyes to some really good friends. Some of those friends are friends that I've grown up with my whole life. I mean, good friends. Some of those we've managed to keep up with and others not so much. And we wonder, why is it that we keep up with some and not others, right? We, we love them all, but you know, you know how that is, right? You keep up with some and not others. I have just a couple of friends that I speak to regularly, um, every couple weeks or monthly. And then, uh, then another handful of friends that I speak to you know, every year or sometimes every couple of years. Uh, just last year, I got to go on a backpacking trip with guys that were, we all grew up together in childhood, and we were in each other's weddings and did scouts together, and we got together, and you know, we picked up right where we left off, with a little bit less burping probably, but um, maybe not, but you know, we picked up right where we left off, and, and, and I was sad because for some of them, I I didn't even know the names of their kids, right? I didn't even know how many kids, right? And I was like, Haley's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking on Facebook to figure out how many kids John has, right? What are, what are their names and, and, all, and all that sort of thing. Right? I hadn't stopped loving these guys. We simply have lost touch. We, we have not prioritized staying in touch, which means that our relationship is it, it's not over, but there have been no new blessings, no, ex- no new experiences from our relationship. For many of us, that's how our prayer lives are. We, uh, we're not in a fight with God. Like we're, like, we're still friends. We just don't prioritize communication. Well, no wonder you're bored when you think about him. No wonder you don't understand the Bible. No wonder, no wonder you're bored in church, right? If he's not interesting to you, Communication is essential for any relationship and prayer is crucial for the Christian life. I mean, could we not say that a Christian who prays little lives a sad, pitiful, mostly powerless life? Right? But notice, Paul's not just commending intense prayer or a lot of prayer or frequent prayer. He's commending a habitual persistence. Right? Steadfast. Now, there's all different types of prayer that are in view here, but this would especially be true for our prayers of petition. The Bible says pray about all sorts of things. I don't think there's anything you cannot pray about. But this is especially applies to petitionary prayers, right? Asking God for things. And Paul has in mind here this kind of prayer, a, a, a kind of prayer that endures, a prayer that continues on, one that doesn't give up easily. Perhaps we could say, crudely, 
that this is a type of prayer that refuses to take no as an answer. Of course, be careful there. I think you know what I mean, right? We continue to bother God, as one of my kids' devotions says. It's the kind of prayer described by Jesus in Luke 18 when he said, he told them a parable so that they would pray and not lose heart. How often have you lost heart in praying? If you hadn't lost heart in praying, you'd be praying way more. Way more. Right? It's the kind of prayer that doesn't tire easily. It's the kind of prayer that really understands the Lordship of Christ. Right? Remember, this is our theme that we're tracing through Colossians. So let's, let's think about it like this. How does this affect prayer? So if Jesus really is Lord, if Christ is the Lord of all the universe, if as 117 says, if Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together, if there's no one higher, no one stronger, no one better, no one more powerful than Jesus, then I'm going to keep asking him to transform my marriage. I mean, if he holds all things together, he can transform my marriage. I'm going to keep asking for him to save my children. I'm going to keep asking him to help me in my struggle with anger. Because I believe that he's Lord. He's above and better than all things. Prayer is steadfast. But it's also watchful. Watchful. To be watchful simply means to be awake. Not to be asleep, right? Now, for many of us, we might need to take this application. (laughs) Don't fall asleep in prayer. (laughs) Haley likes to tell the story of when we were uh, sitting in bed one night, and uh, we were trying to pray together, and I fell asleep in the middle of my prayer, right? Like, I was praying out loud, and I fell asleep sitting up like this, and she was like, Nathan. I was like, what? She said, you fell asleep. I'm like, no, I didn't. She said, you were praying out loud. And I was like, what? Gosh. Yeah, she would never do that. Right? Some of us need to, I mean, seriously, some of us need to apply this the way the disciples needed to apply this in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus? Stay awake. He even said, watch with me in prayer. Jesus personally asked them to watch and pray, and what did they do? Fall asleep. Can't tell you how many people tell me, I cannot get up any earlier. I don't know if there's an application here, but I suppose you do. But I think Paul has something more in view here. The New Testament often calls for Christians to be awake or to be watchful for the return of Christ. All right, the idea all over the New Testament is that it's coming soon, and so be alert, be prepared, be on the lookout. That is, not primarily we're to be watching the sky, but that we are to pay attention to our lives, to, to watch our lives in such a way to live knowing that Jesus is going to return and it's going to be very, very soon. That is, we are to carefully watch our own lives, especially perhaps because we have an enemy. We have an enemy that is common and the enemy, the devil, is, is a lion on the prowl. 
And he is actively seeking to spiritually murder you. And if it wasn't for God's protection physically, well, you have that adversary today. And that is to promote, I mean, my goodness, <laughs> Haley and I went on safari when we were t- in Africa together. And just the very thought that there was a lion somewhere out there made me walk a little bit more upright, right? I was more alert than I would be walking through the woods where I know there are squirrels, deer, rabbits, chipmunks, mice, you know, and maybe a, you know, hawk, all right? We need that kind of alertness to be watchful. But if you think about this in the context of Colossians, I think Paul is probably calling Christians to be especially alert in prayer as to how we're doing as we work out the implications of Christ's lordship. That is, to be praying in such a way that I'm constantly thinking, Lord, how do I need to submit to you more in my life? What are the areas of my life that I, yes, I say publicly I'm a follower of Christ, but what are the areas in my life that I'm not, I'm not doing it. What have I not given you? What am I holding on to? Doesn't have to be some big, bad, terrible thing. Usually it's not for us church folk. It's something inconspicuous, something sneaky, like the desire to be appreciated or the love of a TV series or the security of money, that savings account. We're to be on the lookout, especially during these last evil days where our lives can be so quickly entangled in the culture around us, which does not care about the return of Christ. They mock the return of Christ. And even if we don't agree with them, do we live like them? Does your life look radically different from your coworker who thinks that Christ is a nobody or doesn't care that he says he'll return? It's so easy as Christians to acknowledge that Christ is Lord, to be baptized, to join a church, to take the Lord's Supper, and then to live a completely unremarkable Christian life. That is cultural Christianity. That's Christianity in Jonesboro. Except for maybe the acknowledging Christ as Lord part, or joining a church part. Where we live like the world, live at peace with the world, and in accordance with its values, as if we aren't even aware of its dangers. This makes me think of a really pathetic news story that I saw the other day. We've all heard of the dangers of distracted driving, right? Cell phone usage while you're driving. But have you heard of the dangers of distracted walking? Right? Apparently, a city in Austria noticed an alarming trend in their public safety statistics. Nearly 40% of all pedestrian injuries, (laughs) that's funny to me, 40% of pedestrian injuries were caused by distracted walking. All right, so these are people who are tripping over curbs, walking into lampposts, and falling in open manholes, right? Because they're because they're on their smartphones. The article called them smartphone zombies, right? Some of, the, some of you might have those living in your house. <laughs> yeah, smartphone zombies. So what did the city do? Well, like any good government, <laughs> they thought we can solve this with the, never mind. Right? They installed large circular airbags on street lampposts. True story, it's on the internet. This way, distracted walkers will simply walk face first into a soft cushion of air, 
right? Instead of a cold steel post. I would have been, man, put spikes on the post. I'll teach them. <laughs> the streetlight airbags had a large message written on them, which translated from the German roughly says, will the next car also be so well padded, right? Friends, we are often like these pathetic so-called cell phone zombies. Except the greatest danger is not from street lights, but rather there is a man-eating lion on the loose. There's danger on the streets. Yet we walk through our lives when you may have woken up today forgetting about your status as an alien and a stranger in this world. Oblivious to the extreme danger of these evil times. Man, I have a desire to fit in with my lost friends. I feel that pressure too. Not so much at work, like you do, but much more so in my secular relationships. We got to get our heads out of the sand and be watchful in prayer. I got to keep going. Uh, The text, verse 2, also says to pray with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I've found that I've noticed this pattern in my praying over the years that it can be really easy to grow discouraged in prayer. Like, I'm, I'm not like that person that's got like all these wonderful like God stories. I have some. I had one today. I got answered. He did that for this probably. But like, I, don't, I don't have like tons of those crazy, like really fun God stories. And you, you know what I mean? Um, I think I probably do. I just don't have eyes to see them, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I found it's, you know, if, if you're honest, you may say that perhaps you've had the relationship where you struggle to pray just because prayer is frustrating. Like, it can frustrate you. Sometimes I feel like all I'm doing is getting by myself and, and like, talking to the air about my problems. And, like, I go into prayer mildly anxious, and I leave prayer, like, really anxious. Because all I did was, like, stir up all the problems in my life. And I was telling God, but I wasn't really praying in faith. I didn't really, ha- like, he didn't talk to me. I didn't, you know, and, and so, like, when I was done, I was just, like, focusing on how... The hopeless my situation is completely forgetting who I was talking to and what he is like. I was praying without faith, heaping up my anxieties on myself. Have you done that? That's not, that's not how prayer is supposed to work. I catch myself doing that still from time to time. I think the solution is connected with thanksgiving, at least in part. I'm convinced that thanksgiving is central to how we pray. If when we pray, if all we do is focus on our problems and our perspective of our problems and our concerns and our unanswered prayers, we'll end up in despair. Right? Like everything I'm praying about, God has not done yet. (laughs) Right? I probably would stop praying about it. You know? Prayer has a hope. It's looking ahead. And you see, when we pray with thanksgiving, just think about what it is that we're doing. We're stopping in the midst of all of our concerns and problems, and we're acknowledging all the ways that God has been good. All the ways that He's been faithful. We're taking the attention off ourselves and our problems, as legitimate as they may be, and as much as God wants to hear about them, and we're placing our attention on God and on His character even the way that he's acted towards people that we've never met, like the Israelites. And suddenly, 
even in the company of a thousand sorrows and problems, we lift our eyes to see the power and the faithfulness of God. And then all of our problems start to fall into place. Right? Not that they're fixed, but you have a whole new set of faith to pray. If you meditate on how God parted the Red Sea for a bunch of people who didn't love him and were idol worshipers and didn't trust him like ever, then oh my goodness, it really puts your problems in perspective. And when you see his power, you will plead in a whole new way for him to work. This is especially true when we praise God for all the incredible gospel realities that we awake to each day. I mean, do you want to know how to pray long Do you want to know how to pray with endurance? Do you want to know how to sustain petitions when God seems silent? I know some of you have been praying a prayer for for decades. How do you sustain that prayer? How do you continue to be thankful? Well, by focusing every day on praising God for the fact that no matter what happens, no matter whether or not he answers my my prayer to save my children, no matter what he does there, he has made me alive together with Christ, Colossians tells me. He has canceled that record of debt that was mine that was so long. He has canceled it and the guilt and the penalty that goes with it. He's forgiven you of your personal sins. You will not suffer what they deserve. And now he has become your very life, Colossians tells us. And now Christ, who is your very life, is yours. And when he appears, guess what? You will appear with him also. Have you thanked God for that today? I mean, have you really praised him for that? That will shape your prayers. So now, pour out your request to God. Pray with thanksgiving. And when you do, you will find that your heart is full of faith and able to persevere in the dark seasons of the soul. And all of God's no's and all the confusing answers and all the silence, it doesn't seem like that anymore in light of the cross, in light of what he's done for you. The Lordship of Christ leads us to a vibrant prayer life that is steadfast, watchful, and thankful. But it also gives us a heart for the nations. Number two, the Lordship of Christ drives us to pray kingdom prayers. It drives us to kingdom prayers. In verse three, Paul moves from prayer in general, naturally, to ministry-specific prayers in his own ministry and for his associates, right? For those engaged in kingdom work. We'll see that in the rest of chapter four. And so, while, he says, while you're engaged in praying over the concerns that are local to you, he's also urging us to turn an eye to the work and the progress of the kingdom. Again, this should be the natural implication for us as we consider the implications, or the natural outcome as we consider the implications of the fact that Jesus is Lord, right? His global lordship. If if we delight to submit to him as, as Lord then we will also have a desire to see others do the same. Right? You see how that works? If you, if you delight in Christ, and if you want to submit to him as Lord, then you have a desire to see others do the same. And if that's true, you will pray to that end. Right? It's not primarily because you don't want people to go to hell. Right? That's good. We care about people, but people are not more valuable than Christ. If you delight in Christ, you want other people to delight in Christ because Christ is delightful. Do you see? 
That is ultimately what propels us to mission. Paul wants us to pray like that. Specifically, he's telling us, he, he uses uh, what's become a common metaphor to us, right? This is Bible, Bible talk. He, he requests prayer for an open door for the word. Do you see that? An open door for the word. Paul's praying for evangelistic opportunities. I think it's interesting to note, you'll notice, Paul was not praying for an open door for him. Right? He's not praying for an open door for missionaries. Like, I'm not praying for an open door for Paul as a missionary of the gospel, but rather he was praying for an open door for what? The word. The word itself. Now this may be a subtle point, but I think it's cool, right? It's as if the emphasis is on the personal and the powerful character of the word. His view of ministry was so word-centric and not man-centric, Paul knew very well God did not need Paul, <laughs> right? He didn't need him. The guy on the way to go kill Christians became a Christian on the way to kill Christians, right? God picked him, he saved him, he sent him. God didn't need him, that's for sure. He could have done it another way. God's advancement of his kingdom is not dependent upon the achievements of gifted men, or of powerful preachers, or of charismatic women. And it is, it is not dependent on us at all. It is solely dependent on the advancement of his word. That's it. And he will accomplish it. God's word does not need aid. God does not need Lottie Moon. He doesn't need the International Mission Board. He doesn't need us. Yet, God has sovereignly ordained that his word be delivered by his human agents. That's how he set it up. And Paul seemed to have this balance all sorted out, even in how he prayed. Yes, Paul sought opportunities to clearly speak the mysterious content of the gospel, but ultimately it was not Paul that needed an entrance. It was the word. It was the word. God's word must have entrance into human hearts. For only God's word has power to transform. And in his wisdom, God has ordained that prayer is often, perhaps usually, the means that he opens these doors for the gospel. I don't have time for this, but I, whatever. Uh, I've no, I think many of us often feel, we often feel discouraged or disappointed by our unanswered prayers because we can't see the outcome, right? I, that's been true for me in my life. Um, I've been discouraged in my praying because they seem like they haven't produced any fruit. You've had, the, you've had this experience, right? Um, but, but don't you think that part of Paul's plea here and part of Jesus' plea when he says, seek the Lord earnestly that he would send workers into the harvest... Don't you think that part of the design here is that God is going to answer this prayer? That if you pray for the mission of God to be successful, you don't think God's going to answer that? I mean, I mean, there's something that has increased my faith when I recognize this. So a lot of times we, uh, we pray, with my kids at night, we will pray for lost people groups. All right, well, so we'll take a people group that doesn't have access to the gospel and we'll pray that God will save them. 
And, um, you know, we can't pronounce their names. We just got a little card. And we're not, like, super spiritual people. But, like, there's sometimes where it just hits me, like, you know. Who is God going to save? Because Karis has prayed for the Lebu people 60 times. I, I don't know. God's going to do something with it, right? Like, like, are we wasting our time? I don't think so. Like, God, God answers. He, th- these are prayers that he answers. He's told us his desire is to save the nations. You pray that he'll save the nations. You know what he's going to do? He's going to save the nations. And I don't understand how this works, but it's going to be in a way that he wouldn't have if you hadn't done it. I don't know how that works, right? God is sovereign. He's ordained prayer. And he, he changes his mind in accordance with our prayer. And, and we should pray. All right? Can we, just, can we just leave all those facts there and let him untangle it, right? The spread of the gospel is accomplished in major part by gospel prayers. We can do that. We can do that. Spread of the gospel in the worldwide reign of Christ advances and makes progress through the faithful proclamation of Christ and through steadfast prayer of Christians. John Piper is uh, one of the pastors who first helped me see this connection of prayer and missions. In, in his book, Let the, Ma- Let the Nations Be Glad, which just rocked my world when I was 19 years old, just blew me away. Uh, he, he talks about... Uh, prayer, and he says, he says, prayer is designed to extend the kingdom of God into fruitless enemy territory. Prayer is designed to extend the kingdom of God into fruitless enemy territory. He goes on to speculate why it is that our prayer is so often malfunctioning, and he says it's because we misuse prayer. He says, Piper says, that God has designed prayer to be a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. Prayer is to accomplish wartime mission efforts, right? Missions, like, like military missions. And the problem is that we believers have forgotten that life is war, and so we've stopped using prayer correctly. Here, Piper says, this is a quote, We've tried to rig up this walkie-talkie as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call down firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. Those who are excited about the Lordship of Christ and his worldwide rule will be driven to pray for the expansion of his kingdom. Third point, final point, I've got to move more quickly, more quicker. The Lordship of Christ drives us to pursue missional relationships. In verses 5 and 6, Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for their evangelistic efforts, not only his. And he admonishes them on how to engage in their missional activities. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. So here, Paul's he's addressing how to interact with outsiders, right? That is, those who are not a part of the Christian community, which 
right? In a day of widespread cultural Christianity, this is why I think church membership is so important, is that it helps us, it helps us understand who it is that's claiming to be a Christian, right? They're, they're placing their lot in with a particular body of church, right? Okay, I'll say that later. They're professing that Christ is Lord and the church comes along and they say, we see this, right? And it's, it helps us distinguish who truly follows Christ. It's, it's, it's impossible to follow Christ and to not be a part of a church. Okay? Uh, another, another sermon. But even though Paul uh, spent a good deal of time warning Colossians about the danger of, of being influenced by false teachers, right? Chapter 1, chapter 2. That does not mean that Colossians are to stop trying to influence outsiders. Right? Instead, they are to make the best use of their time. They're to capitalize on every opportunity to influence others for the sake of Christ. There's a sense of urgency here in the text. You see it? Especially in light of this watchfulness language we've already heard. Jonathan Edwards, um, a hero of mine, he, he spoke, oh, he talked about everything. But he talked about the preciousness of time. He said this, Time is precious because a happy or miserable eternity depends on the good or ill improvement of it. Right? Paul is saying, make the most of the time because Christ is coming back. Right? This is, this is going to happen. So friends, we must take advantage of every conceivable opportunity to speak of the evil of sin and of our need for redemption and of the beauty of Christ and of the promise of eternal life. Which means we need to be strategic. Strategic in how we go about taking the gospel to the lost, whether they're our neighbors or our children. Missional living takes more than good intention. It takes actual intentionality, right? We need to seek out opportunities. We need to make opportunities to impact others for Christ. That means you start conversations about the person of Christ. All right? I, don't, I don't know about you. It's really tempting for me to talk about church. Like very few people are offended by church. Lots of people are offended by the claims of Christ. Right? Especially around here. Don't just wait for your coworker to ask you about Christ. Like that doesn't happen much. If you're waiting for that, if, even if you're praying for that, why don't you go start the conversation? Invite a neighbor to your house. Don't wait for them to invite themselves to our trunk or treat or whatever, right? Invite them over. Parents, you are the ones. You are the ones responsible for intentionally creating opportunities to share the gospel with your children, no matter how old they are, and to teach them all the ways of Christ. It's not the church's job. It's your job. We do that in family devotions, right? We need to do the best we can to seek out and use, create opportunities whenever we can get them, but do our best to use the time. Paul also says that we need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders and that our speech should be seasoned with salt. And quickly, I'll, just, I'll take these together. On the one hand, believers should seek opportunities, right? Be intentional. But we're also to have lives that are an aroma, Right? An aroma of grace. The life of the believer should be governed by wisdom. A wisdom that says, okay, I understand that Christ is Lord and that affects everything. And so we put that into play. That's what wisdom in part is. 
And that, that we believe in the reign and the rule of Christ and we conduct our lives accordingly. That's true wisdom. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, the scripture says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Right? Believer, if you have Christ, you have all the treasures of wisdom. Paul says that we are to have lives that are attractive, right? That that wisdom is, is, is attractive. And our lives are to be seasoned with salt. That is, they're distinctive and, and, and drawing attention. And just like the queen of Sheba, do you remember her? She was attracted, a woman of the world, she was attracted to and then amazed by the wisdom and the riches of Solomon. But do you remember what Jesus said? Something greater than Solomon is here. And that is Christ. And we have him. So as the world looks on, and as they're influenced by our words, and and our lives should be in some way winning their attention and showing them the attractiveness of walking with Christ. Friends, I pray that our study in Colossians would stir in us a greater love for the greatness and the beauty of Christ, and that would lead us to pray. Let me close this in prayer. Father, help us as we go into the world to proclaim the good news that Christ has come, warning everyone that he is Lord and that he will come again. Help us as we go. In your name, amen.